0: The following podcast contains explicit language. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers.
1: Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Amami. On this week's show, we'll discuss FX's new series, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. We're also joined by the series creators, Scott Alexander and Larry Kawaszewski. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions@vulture.com. at vulture.com. I'm here with Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons and Vulture editor Alex Jung. Hey, guys. Hey. Hi. So we are talking about probably one of the bigger shows of 2016 so far. For sure. Yeah, this has been like a hugely anticipated one for the past i don't know year about a year yeah Yeah.
2: um and
0: it just feels very within the zeitgeist right? yeah
2: Yeah, i I think like every sort of buzz firing thing you can hit like it hit right so i mean i think like fx in general has like a pretty good um buzz department um ryan murphy i think anything sort of even tangentially related to Ryan Murphy people pay attention to, mm-hmm. I think the O.J. Simpson trial itself is always going to be something that's like a major cultural touchstone for people. Right. And then I think the ideas that are part of the trial, that the show does a really fascinating job of resurfacing, are extremely timely in terms of police brutality, a uh, generalized like uh, skepticism towards uh, police in general, and, and like those forms of authority. And then in addition to that, the whole true crime fascination that is right. like- having a moment right now. I don't think you could possibly have, like, engineered something that we (laughs) were sort of chit worthy Not to say that
1: they did engineer it that way. No, for sure. all
2: kind of... I mean, I think, you know, once you have Ryan Murphy and O.J. Simpson, like, that's going to be an interesting thing to talk about, sort of no matter what, whether it's bad or good. And, and, you know, the show is pretty good. Like, I, I think... Yeah, I feel pretty well, comfortable well, saying that, and we'll talk about that I more. I really enjoyed it, yeah.
1: So for those who aren't familiar, this is part of an FX anthology series. So each season will take on a different story. The larger anthology series is called American Crime Story, not to be confused with <laughs> ABC's American Crime. Which is an anthology
2: series. Which is also excellent. <laughs> Which is also excellent.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but so this one is based on Jeffrey Tubin's book, The Run of His Life. The People versus O.J. Simpson, which is considered to be kind of the definitive account of this trial, and the show, you know, takes us from when the crime was committed all the way through to the verdict, which is about an 18-month time span in 10 episodes, and we also have the creators and writers of the show, Scott Alexander and Larry Kawaszewski with us, on the line from L.A. Scott and Larry, you may know as the writers behind The People vs. Larry Flint, Man on the Moon, Ed Wood. This is very much in their wheelhouse, and this is their first foray into television. There's a ton to talk about with the show, so we're going to talk to the creators first, and then we're going to dig in to the show itself. Hey,
3: Officer Risk. What do you got? The female
1: is Nicole
3: Brown Simpson. She's the property owner. The male is unidentified. Lot of blood. It has a clean heel print. It's also a glove, hat, and an envelope. Down that path is a set of bloody shoe prints. They exit through the rear. It's bleeding from the left hand.
1: So we kind of wanted to start by asking. You know, you you both have been working as a team and filmed together for a long time. What made you decide to move to TV for the first time for this project? Uh,
4: for this project, um, we kind of only saw it as a television show. Uh, you know, we've um, we've only written features before, uh, you know, and, and, and we kind of specialize in biographical materials. But when we heard about this OJ project, when we heard they were developing it for TV, we instantly said yes. We were just like, we're like, we, we would never do OJ as a movie because as a movie you'd be two hours and you would just only have time to sort of tell you the things you already know, just do the greatest hits.
3: Mm -hmm. It would just been,
4: you know, oh, the murder, Bronco chase. You just would have hit those things, and and everything wouldn't have been able to be looked at with any kind of depth. But we thought that uh, this is exactly the kind of thing that the 10-hour miniseries format is perfect for, that, that with 10 hours we could go into all the, the crazy themes that this, 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 this trial brought up, all the characters that, uh, that were, we felt were so rich that, you know, deserved to have uh, their humanity uh, revealed.
1: It, it's often said these days, or for a while now, that film is a director's medium and TV is a writer's medium. H- have you felt that difference at all in terms of how you are integrated into, into the whole process?
4: Well, we've always been really lucky, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons we've sort of uh, stayed in the biographical film genre, in that we were film writers who weren't treated like normal film writers. You know, we sort of became the historians and the experts. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, because we were dealing with pretty obscure people, whether it's Andy Kaufman or, you know, or the murder of Bob Crane, the film that we produced. So so when directors came on, even when there were huge directors like Tim Burton or Milos Forman... Um, they didn't see us as being disposable. They always kept us kind of by their side, and they would they would use us to um, help the various crew people, people like production designers or costume designers. You know, we'd get a call from from Tim saying, hey, you know, what did Tor Johnson's house look like? You guys have a picture, right? And so we would, you know, we would we would be we would be, we would we were much more integrated into the film process than someone who writes just like a you know a family comedy.
3: Yeah, I mean, what what was most important to us was to sort of Get across our tone. We try to balance social observation, high drama, terrible tragedy, and absurd comedy. It's true to life, and life is complex. And we we always said, you know, why 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 do movies have to be only a comedy or only a drama? I mean, we're very happy, uh, you know, that you know between Ryan and and Anthony Hemingway and John Singleton, you know, our three directors, that that tone that we really love to do. Got across in the 10 hours.
4: How
2: hard was it now tackling something that is much more of a common knowledge thing? And and we didn't necessarily, you know, we all kind of know what the houses that, for example, look like. And I think that, you know, the OJ Child is something that looms so large in the American imagination. Taking on a project where people already had a lot of, whether they're correct or incorrect memories of, of this whole story, did that change your approach? Did that make anything harder or easier?
4: It a little bit of both. Uh, in that, um, uh, what we decided to concentrate on was the stuff you didn't know. Everyone can kind of remember where they were during the Bronco chase, but they didn't really know what was going on in the Bronco. You saw Marsha Clark on television, and you had an opinion about her, and you you read people making jokes about her in People magazine, and you uh, you know you people feel so polarized about Johnny Cochran or yeah, everybody was
3: being judged.
4: Started. Yeah. And so what we looked at was like, what, what's going on behind the scenes that people don't know? How can we, how can we uh, make these people human beings? The show is based on Jeffrey Tubin's book, but we did so much additional research. I mean, every single person connected to the case has written at least one book, sometimes sometimes two, sometimes three court transcripts. Of all the, the video footage from, from, from the trial was televised. And so we were able to use all that and, and, and kind of combine it to show what, you know, Marsha Clark was going through. I mean, most people, most people don't know she was go- in the middle of a, of a divorce, that she filed for a divorce three days before the murders happened. Right. Most people don't know that, that Johnny and Chris had a relationship before the trial, that, that Chris Darden looked up to Johnny Cochran as a mentor, and they both had the same, you know, they both, uh, you know, Johnny had had his job earlier in his life, and Chris was actually uh, working for the DA office going after, uh, going after the police.
3: It's also fun just to, to fill in so many gaps. You know, every everyone knows that O.J. fled in the Bronco, but the circumstances that allowed him to flee in the Bronco—I mean, all 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 the, the, the crazy stuff that went down that morning. You know, and so to take something that that really should have been the police showing up to pick him up because the DNA DNA evidence had matched and. Uh, he was the key suspect, but because he was OJ, you know, they gave they gave him uh, they gave him a pass, and one thing led to another, and you know, and then OJ basically ran out the back door. Right. Uh, <laughs> but 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 what happened that morning is completely nuts, and it, it was really cool to be able to you know to show that that kind of trivia to us is really interesting, just to sort of like let people see all the complexity of the story.
4: Because trivia is actually it's it's, it's plot in a weird way because. Um, I think the big mistake a lot of people make when they when they do true life stories is they treat it kind of like manifest destiny that 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 this is what happened and it was always supposed to happen that way and it was just a kind of a, a march to greatness you know and uh, what we like to do is is just look at all the little details that add up to uh, them making that decision so you see mm-hmm. the thousand different ways. The, the outcome could have uh, gone in a different direction.
1: So you you were talking about how all these details are kind of what most interest you about the this case and telling a true story. And what's, inter- what's interesting to me is that each episode is so tightly wound in terms of its narrative. How did yeah. you decide how to structure all of that when you have all of these details that you're working with?
3: We spent a long time outlining the show originally. I mean, this this goes back three years and we spent most of 2013 uh, outlining the the 10 hours. We made a choice that each night is going to have a theme. That gave us a way to kind of shape the narrative a bit and in terms of, you know, where we're going to compress time and where we're going to sort of slow things down. Um, So, you know, just to to grab a theme, Uh, episode three, Uh, Larry and I called it the unraveling of certainty, and what that meant was you come out of the Bronco chase. Marsha Clark has more evidence than she's ever had in a double murder before. The suspect fled, and the DNA matches. So for her, it's a slam dunk, and that's how she begins episode three, and suddenly the defense just starts throwing jabs at her that she doesn't even see coming. And then Time Magazine comes out with a cover that nobody sees coming. And it's just all this crazy stuff she could not have anticipated, and it's just like sand slipping through her fingers. And by the end of Episode 3, what, what seemed to be a sure bet is, is now starting to resemble a little bit of quicksand.
4: And even ideas that you wouldn't necessarily think are associated with the, with the O.J. Simpson trial. I mean, I think uh, giving, the, uh, giving us the opportunity to look back 20 years uh, later uh, you know, to bring up Marshall Clark again, The issues of gender that I don't think were that that obvious or discussed in the public. We spent uh, most of episode six uh, talking about, you know, everyone could make fun of her hair or she's got attacked on a different level that people like Ethley Bailey or Robert Shapiro were not getting attacked.
2: So you guys mentioned, obviously, you know, having this huge body of factual material. But then you also mentioned that you had to simplify some of the story. So how would you describe your sort of relationship to veracity?
4: Veracity is our best friend. <laughs> they, um we love the truth and we think the truth is more interesting than than anything we could we could make up
3: okay well, you know, here here's something here's something that got left out and this is just a, this is just a fun piece of bizarre trivia but we only had 10 hours <laughs> we didn't have 20 hours um uh, would you have
0: wanted 20 hours
4: you could go on uh, we uh, might
3: have lost our minds <laughs> okay uh uh in, in, in the show, uh, O.J. gets dissatisfied uh, with his with his first lawyer, Howard Weitzman, and then uh, Kardashian suggests he should hire another lawyer, and then he and then he calls up Bob Shapiro. The missing piece of the story, which is just completely berserk and and, and interesting, is that there was a, a, a third player, uh, a guy named Roger King who's the owner of King World Syndication, which uh, was a syndicator of game shows. (laughs) And he did not know O.J., and he did not know Bob Shapiro. But he was simply following the case. I don't even think he lived in Los Angeles. And he literally cold-called O.J. Simpson, (laughs) saying, I've heard about this lawyer named Robert Shapiro, who I think you should hire. What? It's just like, it's so bizarre. Uh, and O.J. O- was, was really impressed that this man who owned this giant TV <laughs> company yeah. was calling him. And so O.J. said, good enough for me. And so he called up Bob Shapiro and interviewed him and then ended up hiring him. Right. And, <laughs> and so a man who had nothing to do with either party was the facilitator. Now, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of a fun, weird story. But for our purposes, we got to get to that Bronco by the end of the first night. And the idea of introducing this character, who you're never going to see again in the rest of the miniseries,
4: we could, we
3: we couldn't afford the real estate.
4: Right. I mean, that's the key thing there. The, that that even if you have 10 hours, you can't include everything. You know, that's where you 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 the art comes in. Barry Sheck, uh presenting his DNA evidence that went on for over a week. We had to make a three-minute the scene that got. Got basically all the facts that, that and and the reasons it's important into that scene and also the drama that's going on in the courtroom. So and and the art of it is using the good material from the real case, searching those transcripts and it can be it's it's so painstaking to do this kind of stuff. Search, Searching those transcripts for the five or six great lines that Barry said in the courtroom, circling those, being able to connect them and letting and letting the pre- presentation so people can actually. See, see what's going on and understand what's going on, and make it entertaining.
1: Were there certain notable moments that were added in just to add color to the narrative? For example, the like Robert Kardashian telling his children not to be obsessed with fame—that scene at a restaurant, I believe. Well, yeah. I mean,
3: I mean, yes, he he did take his kids out to Chinchins for right. Father's Day on uh-huh. the Sunday uh, after after the Bronco chase. That is all true, right? Uh, and. And we know that Robert Kardashian was not a man who sought the limelight. And we do know that uh, Shapiro pushed him in front of the TV cameras to read the suicide note uh, that day, and, which was not something he was comfortable with.
4: Right. And we uh, do know that that was sort of his introduction to the, to the world and that Barbara Walters had called him you know, to do an interview. And, and we do know that, that we,
3: hilariously that the reporters afterwards said,
4: what's your name? <laughs> How do you spell it i mean the, and he had to spell his name on on, on national television like,
3: because no one had ever <laughs> it's an unusual armenian name, and he he had to spell it out for them right, and so we assume his kids his four kids are all watching t v and they're they're gonna see their dad on t v and they're gonna be excited like any kids would be yeah we can we can make a quick satirical point and and then we moved on uh I mean not to get your hopes up the the kids are only in Five minutes out of the ten hours.
4: <laughs> right. What's interesting about Kardashian is he's a, someone I don't think Scott and I had any particular opinion about before we started researching it, but the find really discovered that he he was a, he was a good man, and and he was the one guy in this case that didn't have uh, you know any other weird motive involved. He had no he agenda. Actually, yeah, he was there because his best friend said he didn't do it. And he loved his friend, and he was going to remain loyal to his pal and see this through the end. And eventually he gets very conflicted, and he starts to wonder whether his his friend actually did do it. But for us, he just became a very rich, uh, heartful character.
1: What was the casting process like for all of these characters, Um, real-life figures more like? Um, Were you very involved in that? Can you talk a little bit about, you know?
3: Yeah, I I mean, mean, with with, with many of these projects everyone sits around the room and and just has endless discussions speaking kardashian uh, a friend of ours roger cumble had written a series of hollywood plays about 20 years ago and uh, david schwimmer had starred in a couple of them and we were so dazzled by schwimmer i mean this is decades ago (laughs) and his just always stuck with us and uh the idea of Kardashian being the sort of the figure with the biggest heart in the show, and and David's just sort of got those those sad eyes, and he's got that empathy, the way he draws you in, and so we lobbied hard for him.
4: Um, I mean Ryan's very good. I mean I mean, and particularly the way he casts his shows, a lot of big stars are very comfortable with working with him. So getting someone like Travolta. Yeah, he okay. was
3: fixated on nailing. Tra-
4: yeah, Going down Travolta, yeah. the Travolta. grand return to television. Exactly.
1: Was casting O.J. a more difficult process at all?
4: Here's the thing: like, both Scott and I have teenage children, and when you say O.J. Simpson to them, they know about him. They know about the Bronco Chase. They know all these things, but they really only know O.J. as the guy in jail. We felt we needed to cast somebody who would remind people of the general likability. I mean, O.J., in
3: his, in his prime, he, w- he was effervescent. Yes. He was this you know, poor black kid who had become a sports superstar. He'd won the Heisman. He, he had set all these running records. And then he had, I mean, it, it, it's just sort of magical. He had he'd become, you know, the spokesman for Hurts. You know, which is a, a big deal in that era, that a black man is a spokesman for one of the, the biggest companies in the world, and he, he was movies. a movie star, and 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 he was and he was
4: always a, sort of the guy with a smile. So that idea that like O.J. couldn't have done it, that since that first week where you heard that happen, and it was just you know not O.J. O.J. is O.J. a good guy. He's a sweetheart. And so we. Thought you needed to cast somebody in that role that had that general likability, and that's really where Cuba, I think, comes in perfectly because Cuba, Cuba's a great guy. Everyone, everyone, everyone loves Cuba. Cuba has goodwill. He has goodwill. He's won the Academy Award. He's a, he played a football player. <laughs> <in> the Academy Award, <laughs> and then he did handstands. Yeah, exactly. He was one of these guys that that everyone kind of likes. And so, like, if you heard that Cuba killed someone, you'd be like, "No, there's no way Cuba could do it."
3: Well, to
2: that end, did you talk to? I mean, these are all you know. We're describing them as characters but these are all real people many of whom are still yeah. alive did you were you in touch with any of them was there anything no. okay we were
3: in t- we we spoke to nobody um, we, we sort of sort of felt it was important to keep our perspective um, I mean like like Larry said earlier everyone has written book or books and um, every everyone has put across their perspective already in, in print and in and endless interviews. Um, we, I mean, also as soon as you s- sit down and, and meet somebody, um, you're going to form an impression, and you you might suddenly want to be nicer to them, or you might get a bad feeling and want to and want to sort of like paint them in a harsher light. And uh, and we sort of felt like we had so much good research to work off of that we could take all that research and then distill it. And at the end of the day, say, okay, this is the version of Chris Darden that we choose to present in this show.
4: Yeah, and there's many people uh, from the case who are no longer with us. Someone like Johnny Cochran or or Robert Kardashian, and we sort of just we just didn't want to get to the point where we're only talking to some people and not other people.
3: You know, and, and and in terms of the, you know the the victims' families, Fred Goldman was a really passionate. Uh, morally correct representative for how the families felt and um, we give him a, a lot of big scenes where he sort of just rages against the carnival that has set up in town um, sort of saying my son has been murdered why is this a circus why why is this the OJ Nicole show why are there why are there t-shirt vendors outside why are why are people selling you know OJ board games on the sidewalk what the hell is happening to the world it became a trial which was a referendum on the LAPD's racist history and this just enraged fred you know rightfully so which is how come no one's even talking about the suspect anymore people are only talking about the police you know if if you want to put the police on trial fine go have a trial for the police this is a trial to try to get justice you know, for for Ron and uh Nicole. You know, ho- hopefully we, we feel we we honored, you know, the tragedy that happened to the, the Goldman's and the Browns. Uh
1: Jeffrey Tubin said at an event recently that this series kind of acts like a ten hour trailer for Black Lives Matter. I, I'm wondering if you feel the series takes any kind of political stance.
4: Um what was very interesting for us is is Three years ago, I don't think uh, when we first pitched the project, I don't think we we realized how topical it was going to be. We you know we were talking about something that happened 20 years ago, but our first instinct was when we went into the meeting with with 20th Century Fox is we said the, the first shot of the series it's the Rodney King beating and the Rodney King verdict and the and the LA riots. We wanted to put people back to the mindset and really understand you know why this trial. Uh, Became a referendum on 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 race in the LAPD. We knew that at its core, this was going to be the 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 major theme of the show, and this is going to be the the sort of the 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 genius of Johnny Cochran is how he how he used kind of this un, imperfect vessel of O.J. Simpson in order to prove kind of a bigger point to the to the world. And um, uh, but what happened is, as we were writing it, and as we were casting it, and as we were making it, America just got just got. Sort of trapped back in that that sort of endless cycle that it has, where just you know all these you know uh, Ferguson was happening, Eric Gardner, it was all you know, and it just felt like uh, the show was beginning to feel torn from today's headlines.
1: Speaking about you know what's going on in the culture right now, the show also comes at a time when we're in the middle of all these true crime documentaries.
3: Yeah, yeah well that that's because we went into a time machine and we. <laughs> we knew this <laughs> was going to happen <laughs> So we actually reverse engineered our show to come out exactly in the middle of the zeitgeist
1: <laughs> do you have any do you have any thoughts on this whole trend and you know have you watched making a murder oh and, course yes yeah. Yeah. yeah
3: all, all, all the stuff, stuff is great uh it's 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 fascinating uh I, I mean certainly uh i mean less less so in 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 uh in in the jinx uh more so, making a murder and serial uh, almost takes you back to sort of like the early 70s and like the distrust of government. It, it sort of takes you to uh, a, a distrust of, of authority and a distrust of police.
4: All the shows we get compared to are documentaries, right? And and that's you know we are we are <laughs> uh, we are you know a work of drama, which I think sometimes allows us to go dig deeper. We often joke that people, when people say, uh, "Oh, but your show's not, you know, didn't do something correctly," or, or, or you "Your know, show's
3: not truthful because you're not a documentary."
4: We're like, even documentaries aren't, aren't, aren't as truthful as you think they are. Just the mere, the mere act of someone says something in a documentary and you cut to someone else's face, that filmmaker has made a decision. That filmmaker is taking you on a, on a journey and making a connection. They are shaping the story, and that, that's what Scott and I like to do with our, with our pieces. We are shaping the story.
3: You know, if you're, if you're watching a documentary and the guy says, there's no way I could have done it, and then you cut to a meadow and to some butterflies on the flowers, <laughs> that's, that's, that's one choice. The guy says, there's no way I could have done it, and then there's a musical sting. Bum, bum. <laughs> well, that's two different ways in post-production. You You change the audience's opinion of what the guy just said. Audiences oftentimes don't realize this because all film is manipulation.
1: Thank you so much for joining us, guys.
4: Okay, good. Thank you. It was entertaining?
1: Very. (laughs) Yes. yes, It was a pleasure. (laughs) Thank
4: you. Uncle Juice is a
3: good man. In fact, I'm going to tell the whole world exactly that on TV.
4: Barbara Walters called me. Barbara Walters? Yeah. Uh
0: She knows you? She talked to Mom and Bruce too.
2: Bruce is famous, he won the Olympics! Bruce and Mom sell Thighmasters on TV, so that means that they're both famous. Dad, why are you famous?
3: I'm not. Listen guys, listen to me. Look, you know your grandparents. You know me and what I try to pass on to you. We are Kardashians, and in this family, being a good person and a loyal friend is more important than, than being famous. Fame is fleeting, it's hollow. It means nothing at all without a virtuous heart.
1: So we have seen, you know, the first five or the first six, six episodes. Um, but, so we're going to be talking about the, the series in kind of broad strokes, and
2: it's not really a show you can spoil. Right. I mean, I think, you know, we're not going to mention specific scenes here, and obviously if you want to be totally... Uh, I don't know, go in totally cold. It's hard, it's weird though, because so much of the show is stuff that you remember, whether you realize you remembered it or not. Like, or there
0: correctly were... or not, sure. Or,
2: <laughs> right. Or, you know, some of it
1: is like I did not know that the white Bronco was not OJ's white Bronco. Right. That it was his friend's second white Bronco that. Because he, he idolized got... OJ. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean. so Is that a spoiler? No. <laughs> it's so weird because, like, how can you spoil. Real life that occurred right. 20 years ago. Right. Um, that said, you know, I obviously it's it's interesting to see something like this um, sort of re as pop culture. You know, I think this is maybe a product of just getting older. <laughs> is that like you're you like live through enough stuff that like a weird news story from a long time ago then gets sort of resurfaced and recontextualized as and spit back out as this. TV drama.
0: I think what I liked about the fact that it was fictionalized was that it added this layer of surreality to what I feel like the 18-month proceedings were actually like. Right. That, like, the Bronco Chase was on during the NBA Finals, and that it sort of just took over the culture in this way that was, like, entertainment. Right? It's, like, it's Cato, not... Faye, they all became these weird, bizarre, little, like, reality TV stars right. in their own right.
1: And just... Just to clarify, it's it's not necessarily fictionalized because it seems right. as though, I haven't read the book, but it seems that it's used pretty closely to what happens. Yes. But like you're saying, it's it's not a documentary and it's contextualized. It's certainly dramatized at, moments. at dramatized. moments. I mean, yes. I think,
2: you know, that's sort of the natural state of having to retell any story. But like they said, and I think um, there's going to be like sort of, plenty of people dissecting the veracity and and integrity of most of the plot points, I I think this is a very, very accurate representation of the facts as we have access to them. And
0: I think that was smart because it was so bonkers.
2: I think anything that would be like, well, he put the scene in because it was a better drama. It's like, if you can look at the story and not see the inherent drama in it, you don't be a writer. You failed to see the story. Like, like, consider farming. Like, you don't, right? Like, this is such a, a fascinating um sort of defying all understanding of like general stuff story that that it's a relief i was i was relieved how much the show did not feel soapified yeah right um because i think you know and i say this as somebody with like a deep reverence for a lot of ryan murphy's choices he has certainly a reputation a well-earned reputation for camp and for um too much is never too much and uh that is not at all how the show read to me. Right. I had, like, some real trepidation of, like, are we going to turn this thing into soap? And, I mean, so much of it is soapy, like, that in real life, that, that there's such a sort of set of extreme circumstances. Um, but I think the show, show plays it very small. You know, I think that it plays the tension of that, like, on the one hand, like, these are all real people, right? There's not composite characters, as far as I could tell. Um and many of these people are alive and you can read about them in any given issue of People Magazine to this day. And, uh, you know, you have access to all of that. And so seeing real people and then this is a story that played out on such a national, probably international uh, stage and changed so much of, you know, television and entertainment and and all of has all of these like huge lasting kinds of impacts like i think the show does a really good job of playing all of the human stuff as small as possible because those people are experiencing a very strange magnification of self and and you can only really uh explore that idea if we've done a good job of focusing in on how tightly and how specifically those Mm -hmm. people are living their lives that's definitely
1: what i liked most about it was that the we had these real life people Marsha clark johnny cochran robert shapiro who all became kind of Cartoonish when we were watching. I mean, them. Judge Ito for sure. Judge Ito, yeah, they all the became. Itos. They weren't yeah. people. They didn't feel like people. And when I realized I like this show is when, you know, you you really feel like the show humanizes all of them. It's yeah. not, it's not taking advantage of their stories in any way. It's actually deepening them and showing, oh, this was a com- crazy set of circumstances, and this is how th- each of them fit into this trial.
2: And that this was a a unique storm and that no one could have really been situated to to weather it very well um you know only
0: johnny cochran
2: <laughs> yes and no i mean i think we like he in is in yeah but there was also like it came at a cost too right like absolutely i think he was somebody who was maybe better prepared and more accustomed to uh fame in some capacity, but I think the sort of notoriety associated with the trial is not right. something anyone. Because, like, the basically like technology grew with the trial. And so, like, we didn't have court TV, but then, like, over the course of the trial, it's like, maybe we kind of do now. And we didn't and,
1: really have the 24 hour news cycle the way we do now. Yeah.
2: And so, like, right. you know, you, you couldn't have known how to, how to, like, ready yourself for this. And I think it's something that the show just really nails and and really like takes a very clear stance on which is like hey this is like a person that this is happening to and even if you might think this person is mean or shitty or stupid or fame hungry or whatever like that you can have all of these like strong associations with them but that that would be the same kind of association you might have with anyone that you would encounter in actual life and mm-hmm. that there are people you know that are mean or shitty or fame hungry and that like they don't deserve Like a lack of dignity, like you might not want to be their friend, but like they deserve, you know, to have like a safe, okay life, right? Like, right. um, And I think it's interesting. One of the most interesting things to me was how small a role the OJ character kind of has in the show. Mm -hmm. We get some OJ, but it is not right primarily.
0: Really, just episode two. I feel like
2: that's like his big. That's the Bronco car chase, right? Mm -hmm. And then, um,
0: other than that, it's really about the trial. Do you feel like the show takes a political stance?
1: It, the themes that it chooses to focus on are inherently political. Yes. You know, so I don't know. I don't know that it's necessarily saying that anything should have worked out any other way. You know, it's just saying this is this is what you need to know to really understand this trial. This is why people were so split on it because of these racial tensions that were already brewing and kind of this is what contributed to how this trial played out in such a bizarre way. Um, Like, for example, they mentioned that Time magazine cover, which is uh, the the Time magazine basically took a photo of OJ and darkened his face, and that created, rightly so, like outrage. That's still
2: a talking... I mean, that's, you know, I can picture that cover very clearly in my head because it's still part of the conversation about how we... I mean, How one of the ways yeah, skin. one of the ways racism and colorism right. percolates in America, so again, without like spoiling anything and and as as the creator said, sort of each episode winds up having a stronger focus on maybe one of the players, and the episode that really focuses on Marsha Clark knocked the wind out of me. I mean, I thought that was
1: mm-hmm.
2: i you know I remember I know who Marsha Clark is, why didn't you have this sort of picture of her in your head, and you're like, well, I assume there was a bunch of like horrible misogynistic stuff just because like I live in the world and that's how it always is but I certainly had no understanding of like the the S- volume and scale and the gravity and, yeah. yeah and it was just astonishing yeah. and like I'm not a naive person I think and I was still just like really really horrified by it um by like being witness to institutionalized misogyny and and sort of by acknowledging the fact that there is severe institutionalized racism this isn't paranoia right like this isn't a a deception that that any thinking person would be able to say yes the LAPD has a long garbage history of race relations like like that isn't like saying that is political right and right. and being able to acknowledge like this is true even though people could say that it's not like it is and that's a lot of people's lived experience is being told you're lying or you're trying to make excuses or whatever and i think a show taking a stand and and depicting those aspects of not just the case but of la at the time that is political right. and, and it's uh,
1: what it chooses to focus on that makes it political right
0: and i guess i guess that's the point right it's that it 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 does feel very true to the lived experiences of the characters that it sort of looks mm-hmm. at whether that's Marsha clark or johnny cochran or chris darden and for those people like for johnny cochran and chris Co- darden race is obviously a huge part of how they exist in the world and by being true to that then it feels i mean then you sort of ine- inevitably get into black politics in the early, late, early 90s mm-hmm. in la which has to do with Rodney King and the LAPD and police brutality and all of these things. I
1: think they actually do a really great job of doing it in a nuanced way that I think will actually work well for the show in terms of getting these um, issues up as a part of the conversation in a really good way, a productive way. Right. Yeah, it's
2: not TV vegetables,
0: right? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's,
2: it's not a lecture. Cause, um,
0: yeah, because even the Marsha Clark episode, which was also my favorite episode that I've seen so far, it it had built so much up until that point Of like It wasn't just like, this episode is the misogyny episode where we sort of focus on gender. That sort of was always a part of how she existed in that space. And you sort of saw it in these glimpsing, perhaps fleeting moments that sort of made a crescendo in that one episode. And I think that's what was so smart about it, too, was the way in Mm -hmm. which it was so layered and sort of went back and forth between different things.
2: This is sort of like a fuzzy way to think about it. But I I really like shows where it's clear that... um, that like life continued for our players whether or not they were on camera right um Yeah. You know this is like an incredibly silly example but like on friends for example like when you're not <laughs> yes. in the scene nothing has happened to you right right like it's like whoa whoa I wonder what Joey was doing at work it's like nope <laughs> like there was no nothing work. else was happening right like there 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 was no life of the show without the parts you were seeing and I think um I mean I guess the weird tangential connection here is David Trummer that's probably <laughs> why I thought of that. But um, I think one of the things that, that the people versus O.J. Simpson does incredibly effectively is that you feel like everyone's like train has left the station. And at various points, we're checking in on mm-hmm. them and we're going to see the whatever they're currently dealing with. But that in the hours that we spent not focusing on that person, they were still having a lot of shit going on. And right. and sometimes it's acknowledged exactly what that was and sometimes less so. But I think they do a good job of sort of like setting up everybody or like winding up all of the things and then like setting up, like mm-hmm. letting them all go. And then you sort of get glimpses of how people are and, and you get a pretty clear deal from these players. And I think that's hard sometimes in um, stuff that's generally nonfiction mm-hmm. to, to be able to construct um, a character that's fictionalized enough that it's able to move a narrative forward. But True enough that it is not a, an mm-hmm. oversimplification of how humans operate. And I think the show does a very good job of of balancing that and making it clear, sort of, this is the kind of person this person is. These are their the, the struggle they're going to run into over and over. This is a lens through which they tend to see the world. This is something people often say about them.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the actors who play these roles. Mm-hmm. We have a clip here of Cuba Gooding Jr. who plays O.J. Simpson after... He's failed a lie detector test that his lawyers had him take. This is from the first episode. This is from the first episode. I
3: failed it! She just died! I'm so emotional! I mean, every time they mention Nicole's name, my heart went crazy! Calm down. Don't work. And these things don't work. These machines don't work. That's why we can't use them in the courtroom. We know this This was just for us. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Bob is right. Just to give us um, something to talk and about. And it's not admissible. I mean, every time they... What do they think was going to happen? You asked me that. Somebody say something. Or what do they think was gonna happen? They're talking about the mother of my children dying, and they're asking me these questions. Of course the needle's gonna be jumping. And you two are supposed to be representing me. You're supposed to be in the room. Why am I paying your ass? Come on, let's let, let, let's take a break from this. I think that's a good idea.
1: I really, I really, I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but I, I found like the moments where he's like this scene we just heard, where his anger reaches this boiling point, to be really compelling uh like a really compelling performance to watch i also i was talking to some people about it and they felt he was too small for the role that oj is kind of this larger figure and that cuba doesn't quite feel like he inhabits that do you have any thoughts on that
0: i did i do feel like he he understood the petulance Mm -hmm. of like maybe what it's like to be a super famous kind of coddled star um and that's i think that's the aspect of it that i liked i did sort of want I think maybe like a deeper voice, or because OJ had such a distinctive yeah. voice to me that that it, it it was a little hard for me to get away from the fact that I felt like he had a a little more gravity or uh, more timber, I mm-hmm. guess. Um,
1: no, I, I
2: I had the same thought about his his voice. I guess I, I, but
0: it I felt feels like, like an unfair he, quibble sometimes. Right. So. I don't know. Well,
2: that was I, the first thing I thought too. Except I wondered if I simply. Don't actually know what OJ Simpson really sounds like, mm-hmm. and that my like, it's like oh, this is how he sounded. I think in a commercial from when I was a kid, or like from Naked Gun or something. Like if those sort of camera voices were the less authentic, you know, I'm I'm not a football fan. I you right. know right. And so I, like I I
1: wondered if maybe it was me. So we also have Sarah Paulson, a Ryan Murphy
2: favorite, as Marsha Clark.
1: I loved her. She's just amazing.
2: I was so I am historically not always a huge fan of her performance Mm. choices Mm. Uh, and I was very taken by this performance so uh, even if you're perhaps not always a huge especially in sort of the Ryan Murphy context I don't Mm. always love um, their collaborations for her Uh, I thought this was fantastic I just think yeah I, I really I think that's sort of the the breakout character from the show her she and gets I, the for same... me
0: courtney b vance was also
1: yeah, phenomenal too. they I get thought. the best lines i think yeah and they just yeah courtney b vance plays johnny johnny cochran. cochran i mean i was pretty young when this trial played out and you know to see that kind of relationship between christopher Chris darden and johnny cochran which is what scott and larry were also alluding to it's that it's kind of devastating to see it, you know? It's kind of, they have this kind of mentor student relationship that really, you know.
0: And the moments too where even though they're on opposing sides, but Johnny Cochran is still looking out for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are really nice moments.
1: I kind of appreciated this kind of kind view I felt the the creators had towards all the people who were involved. It was in very it. warm. Mm-hmm. Like
0: even hearing them talk about it, it made sense to me that they sort of felt really bad for Marsha and Chris mm-hmm. and that there was a genuine respect for Johnny Cochran too. Like I, I sort of felt that How emanating from through. the show.
2: It's so weird. Cause like, as we're talking about this, I'm, I just, I feel so much more like what they were saying about, um, Fred Goldman feeling so, um, mm. you know, in addition to like having to endure the tragedy of, of your child being murdered, that like this winds up taking on this whole other life to everyone else. And that, um, I think that's maybe my one like weird qualm about this as entertainment, kind of, and it
0: re perpetuates it.
2: Yeah, and and I don't think you have an obligation not to. I don't think it's like an ethical violation to mm-hmm. not like. I I don't you know I don't think we're doing anything wrong here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder if there's other things that people could do more right. I don't know. I no, just but like I, I d- mean this. I mean
1: this is is this this is. You could say the same about any of the true crime documentaries. And I have. Exactly. (laughs) And I mean, I think it's right to point out because oftentimes we hear the victim, like victim's voice, Mm -hmm. but it feels not a part of the conversation. It's kind of like, oh, that voice is in the background while we're having this conversation that tries to justify why it's okay that we're talking about it. Yeah. You know, so it's an uncomfortable kind of, it's just... Like I don't, I don't know, I don't know what the answer is to that. But um, it's it. Fred Goldman has said that he's like upset about this show, just recently this week. You know, and I don't think he wants any part of anything that brings up this. The, I mean, this show. It's not like it kind of focuses on the victims at all. Like that, most of these kinds of narratives tend not to.
2: Sure, I think one. I think what makes this maybe feel especially. Um, jarring is that so many people feel like they have a right to this story and that there's so many threads of the story that connect to even like it being sort of a normal conversation point of like hey do you remember where like were you in math class and like wheeled in a tv to read the verdict mm-hmm. and like that being like a, a like a common memory for anybody around our age and and have like everyone sort of has their little like tiny particle of the oj thing and you know the whole show is about how all of these sort of otherwise disconnected people like this became easily the most notable like this is the first line in everyone's obituary basically uh that like oh from the oj simpson trial right like that is how like that is their sort of legacy in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways and so Everyone kind of has like a little piece of this and feels like entitled, and I think culturally, we're like a culture of saying, like, well, everyone's story is our story, and we can all get to like tell it in our own way and experience it in our own way. And everyone's sort of having that. And it feeling really strange that that this is a story that starts with two people being murdered. Mm-hmm. and they their story having sort of the least amount of claim to how we talk about this. I can't imagine how the Goldman family
1: and the Brown family feel. Like this being, I believe last year, there was a ton of 20th anniversary coverage about the end of the trial. It may have, So 94 to 95 was the trial. I believe it was last year or the year before where there was just like a shit ton of coverage. And now the next year to have OJ become like a huge phenomenon again, it, I don't know. It's, it's kind of weird. <laughs>
2: it's weird, yeah. right? Like, I think it's worth, like, it doesn't mean you have to do anything about it. I don't know that this is, like, a call to action. But I think I would feel better if I thought that I was at least around other people who are like, yes, this is weird. Like, let's acknowledge that this is, like, a strange thing to participate in and that you didn't enter into that conversation without even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. The People vs. OJ Simpson airs Tuesday
1: nights at 10 p.m. on FX. And we'll be talking about this show throughout its 10-episode run, so stay tuned. Do you have any thoughts,
2: questions, yeah. comments? You want to email us at tvquestions@vulture.com at vulture.com or leave us
1: a voicemail. It's at 646-504-7673. And that's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at slash panoply. And if you like the show, tell your friends and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. I'm Gazella Amami, and you can find me on Twitter
2: at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Margin Charge.
0: I'm Alex Jung, and you can find me on Twitter at E underscore Alex Jung.
2: Thanks for listening.